Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So, should we practice our righteousness in public or not? Is it appropriate or not? Now, if you haven't already thought about it or already noticed, there is an apparent contradiction between this passage and a passage we covered in the fifth chapter, verses 13 through 17, where Jesus said, You are the light of the world. Let your light so shine that men may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. The essence of that is, let them see your good works. Jesus then starts out what we, as we have divided this in, into chapters. He starts off the sixth chapter by saying, don't practice your righteousness in public for others to see. It seems like a contradiction, doesn't it? But it's really not a difficult one for us to reconcile because we understand that Jesus does not contradict himself. But skeptics would probably point to something like this and say, your Bible is full of contradictions and this is one example of it. But not really. It's very easily resolved by understanding that We are to let our good works be seen as long as that glorifies the Lord and not us. And Jesus warns us not to practice our righteousness to be seen. So it's about motive. That's why there is no contradiction in this. And there are some people who read the Bible uh, without understanding context, and they get a false understanding of what it is telling them to do. And they would read a passage like this, and, and there are some, uh, like churches, denominations, uh, uh, groups, small groups of people, that they take this very literally, not to do their acts of righteousness practice their righteousness in front of others so they can't they can't practice their religion in any way that somebody else will see this it has to be totally private now that's not a large group of people that do that but that's the problem that arises whenever they try to take it literally instead of understanding the application of it and the context of it so doing works of righteousness the king james version It calls it doing your alms. In other translations, they use the wording practicing righteous acts or doing good works. 
And it all refers to those things we do because we love God and we want to serve Him and we want to do our duties to Him. We want to be obedient to Him. The problem is sometimes we get in our own way of worshiping God and serving God because of our pride. Sometimes we mix in with serving God and worshiping God a little bit of self-importance. It's an insecure need for a personal attention and recognition. And all of this selfishness that we add to the pot poisons and ruins our acts of worship hogging the limelight from God, stealing the glory from God, and receiving it to ourselves. So why would anybody want to steal attention away from God? And one short answer to that is because we enjoy the immediate feedback. Do you understand that God's approval is not quite as readily apparent and tangible as man's approval? Do you understand that a pastor, a preacher, an evangelist can preach and excite the people and get an immediate response, whether it's a hand clap or a... a hallelujah or an amen, they get support. That's immediate feedback. And the truth of the matter is, that feels good. Can you say amen? (laughs) Oh, that felt good. Immediate feedback pleases us. But I don't get immediate, measurable, tangible feedback from God. I get approval. And it's very nebulous. It's very vague. It's not like whenever I do something, immediately I hear God, boom from heaven, well done, good and faithful servant. I don't hear that. He's silent. I sometimes go home from Sunday wondering if God approved or not and hearing nothing from Him. That's the reason that we get self-involved in ministry because we like the immediate feedback we get. We're looking for affirmation from people, applause, admiration, And when I get it from people, I can measure it. I can feel it. But at the same time, what I get from people is virtually worthless compared to God's approval. So the bottom line is this. You can have God's approval or you can have man's approval. And that's your choice. And if what you do in serving God is so you can be commended by man, by people, you have your reward. That's it. That's all you're getting. People like you. 
People approve. People applaud. You get zero from God. Now, that doesn't mean that God withdraws his approval just because people happen to approve. It has to do with attitude. It has to do with motive. If I do it because I'm trying to get approval from people, I miss and forfeit the entire approval from God. God says, you've got your reward. A person has to be extraordinarily secure in themselves to be able to live without the approval and the applause and the commendation of men and hold firmly to the belief that as long as God approves, I don't care if anybody else does. Insecure people can't do that. Weak people can't do that. Immature people cannot settle for that. Emotionally needy people can't do that. Faithless people cannot do that. So do you want to be mature? You want to be people of strong faith? You want to be secure in your walk with God. And you have to learn that there are going to be things we do sometimes that we know, that we know, that we know. It pleases God. And it incurs the disapproval and sometimes the anger and the wrath of everybody around you. It's not easy to stand for approval of God and stand against popular opinion. It simply isn't. But the minute that we sacrifice God's approval for man's approval, our works become nothing but works of vanity, and they have absolutely no value in God's estimation. Jesus gives us three examples of what we are talking about now. Doing acts of righteousness, doing pious acts, religious acts, and in the process, mixing in self into this. And the three examples are giving, charitable giving, praying, and fasting. And in each of these, he shows how some people do this in order to be seen and approved. And you'll notice there's a rhythm to these three things that he shares with us. They have certain things in common. The introduction, the conclusion, do not do that. If you do that, you will not be rewarded by God. You'll notice this, this rhythm to this. The first one that he deals with where people fail because they get themselves involved in this, is giving. Now, I've titled my sermon today, The Treasure of the Secret Place, because what we're really after is being able to do these things for God. And these are just examples. These are not, uh, the, it's, it's not limited to just these three things. But these three examples, for instance, giving in secrecy, not to be seen. 
God demanded that Israel support the poor. They had a good system to take care of them. They had laws about gleaning the fields. After the reapers had come in, whatever had dropped, whatever was left over, the poor could go and glean from the field. They were taken care of. They had a law that required their field to rest in the seventh year. So whatever grew voluntarily, the poor could harvest. The owners of the land could not have that. That was for the poor. The same applied to their vineyards and to their olive groves. God required the Israelites to cancel the debts at the end of seven years. So we read of the prophets repeatedly rebuking Israel because they failed in taking care of the poor. They had forgotten about them. Now, with this in mind, we see the stark contrast of Jesus entering this world and beginning to reach out to the downtrodden, the oppressed, the poor, because Israel had strayed from that. They were supposed to be doing it. They were not doing it. Jesus comes and he sets the example. We are reaching out to the poor and the oppressed. So it becomes a very remarkable thing for him to do when they should have been doing it. They weren't. And he comes back and he resets them and gives the proper example. Now the Jewish faith evolved. And the Jews developed three acts of piety that they practiced regularly. And felt like if they did this, they were fulfilling their religious duties. The first that they incorporated into their regular practice was to give alms to the poor. They made sure daily or regularly they did this as a part of their service to the Lord. The second one was prayer. And the third one was reading the Torah. So if they were going to be a good Jew and they were going to do their proper religious service to God, regularly they would give, they would pray, and they would read the Torah. The giving became equated with sacrifice. And whenever the sacrificial system ended because of the incarnation of Christ. They no longer sacrificed, but they used the act of charitable giving to substitute for that. So that became very, very important to them. We no longer sacrifice animals, but we sacrifice by giving. Now I've kind of set this up so we can understand as we get into this. Jesus said, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others, to be seen by them. If you do, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. The warning is crystal clear. And then he proceeds to this first pious act. So, when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by them. And that's one of the Rhythms that you will see to this, do not do this like the hypocrites do. You'll see that in the examples. Do not sound the trumpets like the hypocrites do in the synagogues, on the streets, to be honored by others. So you got motive designated here. They did this to be seen. 
you've got to get your brain around the behavior of these people that Jesus is addressing and, and identifying as hypocrites. Remember the pious acts that they incorporated into their life, the giving, the prayer, and the reading of the Torah, and somehow they had turned this into something that was all about them. So whenever they gave, they gave in such a fashion to be seen by others. And Jesus said, don't sound the trumpet. Now, was there really a trumpet? We don't know. Some say that there were trumpets that were sounded in the synagogue whenever these hypocrites gave. They made arrangements to be the big kahuna. I don't know if there really was. There have been others that have researched history that don't find any other reference to trumpets really being blown when the offering was given. Somebody else suggests that casting money into the treasury, that there was a horn-shaped opening, metal opening, that was looked like a, a trumpet, the, the opening of a trumpet. And when you drop your money in there, then, of course, it would make some noise. Well, if that's the case, and we don't know for a fact it is, but it's been suggested, then what these people would have been doing was been, they would have uh, made as much noise dropping the money in as they could. And just think about it. If that's your motive, is to give, to be noticed, to give, to be seen, you don't bring a single coin worth $10. You bring all pennies. You make all the noise you can. You spend all the time you can dumping this in because you want people to hear the noise associated with your giving and, and to ooh and awe. Is that, wow, he really gives. But see, Jesus also talks about not just giving in the synagogue, but giving out in the street. Now, we're, we're probably pretty safe in saying they didn't take trumpets with them everywhere they went so that they could blow a trumpet and give. But they probably did make some sort of a scene about giving to the needy on the street. Jesus is saying they did. What they did, we don't know. But we can imagine that if they were going to give, they would wait, perhaps, until there was somebody to notice that they were giving before they would do this act. They wouldn't want to do it when nobody's watching. What a waste of giving if you don't get to get some credit for it. Or whatever else they may have come up with in order to make sure that whenever they did this act, they got the credit for doing it. When you give, don't announce it with trumpets. So if there weren't really any trumpets, you have to understand the expression Jesus is using is just as metaphorical as the expression we use today when we talk about somebody blowing their own horn, tooting your own horn. Now, if, if that was recorded and read by somebody 200 years from now, 500 years from now, or 1,000 years from now, they would think that this is a society that went around with horns. But we don't. It's an expression we use that just literally means 
drawing attention to ourselves, bragging on ourselves. And we can rest assured at bare minimum that's what Jesus was talking about when you give, don't blow your own horn. Don't toot your own horn. Don't draw attention to yourself like the hypocrites do. Because if you do, you won't have any reward from God. All you get is the reward of people being impressed by you. That's all you get. He says, when you do this, to be honored. See, people respond to recognition. Just like I said a while ago, they respond to this immediate feedback that we get. And I've, I've noticed examples of this throughout my life. I, I don't know how many of you have attended many district councils of the Assemblies of God. I don't know how many of you have ever attended, attended family camp meetings in the Assemblies of God. I can't speak to other denominations because I don't know what they do in their district meetings. I don't know what they do in their camp meetings. But I can tell you about Assemblies of God because I grew up cutting my teeth on the back of the pews of Assembly of God churches. I know what goes on. So I remember when I was just a, a, a young child and we get, went to family camp. Now, family camp kind of closed out the camp season. You have your children's camp, you have your youth camp, and then the last available weeks for camp would be the family camp. And in our district, they were always needing money. They were always in debt. They were always scrambling to meet the budget. And so they would start off every service at the camp meeting raising money before we could get on with the camp meeting service. I remember very clearly the whole routine as they shared the budget, they shared the shortfall, shared the need, and they would say, and now... If there's anybody here that would be willing to give $1,000, would you please stand? And they would get a few people that would stand. And then when they ran out, they had exhausted, obviously, the volunteers at the $1,000 level. They lowered it to 500 Now, some of you may not be able to afford $1,000, but there's a few of you that can give 500 would you stand? And, of course, you got the secretary-treasurer up there that is quickly writing down what they can expect and who's going to give it, you know, recording this. And when they exhausted the $500 level, now let's let those who are willing and able to give $100 to help us out. Well, you got a lot more people standing up with $100 than you did $1,000. Now people are starting to pop up. But there's people that are waiting for that level where they have an opportunity to stand and be seen because everybody is, is getting in on this. Now $50. How many would stand? Well, you get a lot of $50. When you got below $50, you didn't get to stand. You just took up an offering and you threw it in. No, there were no $20 stands, no $10 stands, no $1 stands. We, you people don't get to stand. We don't want to recognize you, but please drop it in the offering plate when you go by. But if you had 50 bucks, at least you got to stand. Even as a young boy, I saw how ludicrous that was. I've seen it at district council. 
And here's the thing that has always fried me about district council is whenever they make a big to-do about the church that gives the most. The church that gives the most in missions at district council, gets they have a special time set aside in the service where they will call that pastor forward. And this church, this pastor and his church gave a million dollars to missions this past year. Pastor, would you come up and would you get your award plaque tonight? Let's all, and let's all give him a hand. Give him a hand tonight. Yes, come on up. Thank you very much. And he comes up and he gets honored. And then, of course, the second place. And they have given $750,000. Would you come on up and get your, give your plaque? And, of course, if you were a little struggling church of just a handful of people and all you were able to do is send in 100 or $200, you didn't get mentioned. It doesn't matter. But you, if you're pastoring a church that just happens to have a lot of uh, income, uh, lawyers and doctors and, and, and uh, executives, and you can give a million dollars, to your pastor gets to go up there and get honored and get a plaque. I didn't ever want a plaque. I didn't even want to have to go up on the platform. But I could see the manipulation. And the manipulation, it happens in, in, uh, on Christian television. It happens. There's manipulation all the time trying to get your money by making you a hero and a star. I, I remember an evangelist one time that uh, he liked to take up his own offerings. They, these, some of these evangelists discovered that they took up their own offering. They got more because they had ways. You know, so he would take up his own offerings and he would say, uh, I want you people to just come on up and, and drop your money in right here. Let's 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 just bless the Lord tonight. Well, the Lord was another name for the evangelist. And so they came up and one guy came through and he threw monopoly money in there. Oh, the evangelist was all over that. He went over and he grabbed that up and he held it up. He said, I want you to see this. And he made a big deal about somebody defrauding and throwing this fake money in there. Now, you know, all of this stuff, I've, I've seen this junk all my life. It's disgusting. Jesus saw what the hypocrites were doing with this issue of giving and how they were trying to draw attention to yourself to themselves, they give to be honored. And he's telling his disciples, because we're still in the training the disciples mode, right? And he's telling his disciples, you're going to follow me. Don't be like the hypocrites. Give in secret. Now, once again, uh, you have to be careful about being so literal about this that you think, well, maybe God doesn't appreciate me having any record of what I gave. If you're struggling with that, let me rest assured that if you want a record, uh, God's not offended by that. So it's not a scriptural mandate that you have to just drop your money in without any record of having given. That, that's not what Jesus is referencing at all. Remember, it's motive to give for the purpose of being seen and for the purpose of getting glory for it. Keep that in mind. So let's don't get legalistic about this. Talk about... Uh, Anonymous givers, there was a little church just a few miles 
north, about 20, in a little town about 20 miles north of my hometown. And they had uh, three or four or five men in that church that just were very well-to-do. They had done well for themselves. And that church always, even though it wasn't a very large church, always just was able to, to really get big offerings for whatever they needed. Well, they wanted to build a church. So they took up a special offering just to see what they could raise towards this church. Somebody dropped a roll of bills in there, and after they counted that bill, $50,000 in bills that had been dropped into the offering plate. And nobody knows who gave it. Now, that's anonymous giving. Anybody inspired to give anonymously? (laughs) Don't. Don't try any monopoly money. I learned from an evangelist what to do with that. And, and Jesus says, and he uses this odd little expression. He says, so when you give, don't, don't be like the hypocrites. When you give, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. So that, that throws us for a little bit. What did he mean? Well, it's, it's just an expression. Again, it's just an expression that means to be so private so discreet that if this hand does the giving, this hand doesn't know what's going on. It's just an expression of extreme discretion, which we know in reality, your hands are, don't think like that. <laughs> but it was the way he could express how important it was not to draw attention to yourself when you're doing this. Because that's what the hypocrites do. Give in secret. Then he says, pray in secret. When you pray, once again, here's the rhythm, do not be like the hypocrites. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. We would have loved to get to see said hypocrites in action. They had to be a humorous bunch. Really. And Jesus said they, they love to stand in the synagogue and draw all the attention to them when they pray. And they love to go out on the street corner and pray fancy prayers just to be seen. And he says they have their full reward. But when you pray... Go into your room, close the door, pray to your father who is unseen, and then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And then verse 7 begins a little segment of this that because we are Pentecostals, we will no doubt consider it meddling. Jesus says, when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans. For they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. We have to focus on his rationale there. He said, don't babble repetitiously when you pray. If you grew up in a Pentecostal church like I did, one of the first things you learned how to do was babble. It was a part of being Pentecostal, making noise. And Jesus said, pagans do that. Don't. 
babble repetitiously like pagans. They think that if they use a lot of words and make a lot of noise, that it will enhance their prayers. And he said it doesn't work. You know why it doesn't work? And here's the thing that is just really going to revolution our prayer life. Because Jesus said, God already knows. There is such power in that phrase. If you can get a hold of this, people, you'll realize you don't have to tell God five times. He already knows. Now, he doesn't mind you addressing the issue. That means you're personally invested in this. You you can say, well, Lord, there's not much left in the bank. And God is not going to rebuke you and say, I knew that. Why are you telling me? Don't waste your time. No, he wants you to address him. He wants you to come to him. He wants you to tell you your problem. He just doesn't want you to spend the next four hours telling him the same problem. You wouldn't stand that from anybody else that came to you and said, I have a problem I need to talk to you about. And for four hours, they kept repeating to you the same problem over and over. You want to stand and scream and say, I got it got it let's move on it's what god is doing i got it enough of this babbling because he already knows now when you have already addressed it and god acknowledges and he says i know if this is on your heart then now we're going to deal with this and jesus immediately goes into how to pray because at this point you got to know that when he's addressing their method of prayer they're saying well we don't know how to pray then and Jesus said well let me give you an example of how to pray I'm going to go into what is called the Lord's Prayer but some people have said really this should more appropriately be called the disciples prayer because uh, it's really the prayer he he wanted to teach them how to pray and he says Pray like this. This is how you should pray. And, of course, you know the the Lord's Prayer. We even sang about it this morning. And the unique elements of this segment on prayer are summarized as follows. First of all, the futility of being repetitious and babbling. And it was the trademark, interestingly enough, not the trademark of the hypocrites. It was the trademark of the pagans. So now he has said, don't be like the hypocrites. Don't be like the hypocrites. And while we're at it, don't be like the pagans either. And then he says, here's this model prayer. Would you notice, would you emphasize the word how? As opposed to the word he did not use, what? This is how you pray. It's important to take this into consideration. Because he was not telling us, this is the prayer we have to use. He's saying, let me give you an example of how to pray. This is a model of how to pray. This is not the prayer you are expected to use. And the reason I mention this is because the first thing the early church did was they took this prayer... And they incorporated it into their tradition. And they prayed the prayer of Jesus mechanically over and over again. 
believing that the more times they prayed it, the more spiritual they were. Can you see the irony of Jesus talking about don't be babbling, don't be repetitious, but here is how you pray. And the minute they walk away, they take that exact prayer and they pray it and pray it and pray it. And, and Jesus has got to be going, oh, you, you, you people don't get, I didn't say pray this prayer. I said, learn from it. Learn how to pray. This is how you pray. And let's break this prayer down into elements so we can make sense out of how to pray. First of all, he begins with worship of the Father. So when you pray, you don't have to memorize the Lord's Prayer. When you pray, here's a good, here's a good suggestion. Begin by worshiping the Lord. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The second element of the prayer is an acknowledgement of God's supremacy and our submission to his will. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we've worshipped him, we've adored him, we've established his majesty. And then we've said, and we want to submit to you. That's the second element of this, submission to the Lord. The third thing is deliver your petitions. And in this example, Jesus gave some petitions. He said, give us our daily bread. Ask for forgiveness. Help us not to yield to temptation. And the second part, this is part A and part B, help us not to yield to temptation, but deliver us from evil. That's the negative aspect of it and the positive aspect of it. Don't let us fall for temptation. Do deliver us from evil. That's very legitimate to ask God for that kind of help. And then the doxology, the ending. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Reminding ourselves of the eternality of God. He's not a God of time. He's a timeless God. So we begin with worship of him, submission, tell him our needs, and then end up by saying, I'm confident in my prayers because you are the eternal God. And it's so simple. That's simple prayer. And we complicate prayer so much. If you come to our first Sunday of the month prayer meetings, and we spend 45 minutes or so praying here, and if you've ever wondered, how can I think of something to pray for 45 minutes, you're not understanding that's a different kind of prayer when we're going to spend extended time in the presence of God. It's not so much spending four, 45 minutes telling him, Lord, sell the property, sell the property, sell the property, sell the property. Have I mentioned sell the property? Lord, we need help sell the property. He doesn't need 45 minutes of that. If you want to go through your petitions and get them out of the way, that's fine. You want to come and worship the Lord? In prayer, that gets his attention. But then it's learning to listen to God instead of expecting God to listen to you. Babble. So that's why we pray. We come to be in his presence to hear what he says to us. Then he closes this segment on the, on the prayer, what, what we call the Lord's Prayer by going back and reemphasizing one part of that prayer. When he says, uh, talks about the importance of forgiveness. He says, now here's, here's the, let, let me emphasize the issue of forgiveness. If you forgive those who sin against you, then your heavenly Father will forgive you. 
And if you don't forgive others, your Heavenly Father will not forgive you. So don't bother praying for forgiveness from God if you have unforgiveness in your heart. The third thing, secrecy in fasting. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do. Once again, he's telling them what they do. Don't do that. For they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. I told you this was an interesting bunch of people. The things they do that are so obvious, when you know they are the ones drawing attention to themselves in the temple by dropping all that loose change in there. They are the ones that are praying these loud prayers on the street corners to be seen and to be heard of others. They are the ones that whenever they're fasting, there was the fasting face that they had established. It was a face that was supposed to depict extreme anguish and pain and discomfort and sadness. And whoever invented that face, it caught on. So in order to fast, to be seen, you learned how to do the face. You had to practice this face. To have a good fasting face, you were a good faster. I bet they held seminars on how to get the fasting face. I know people, and you do too, that have the face. They put the face on every time they go out in public. Because they want the world to know how miserable they are. They're just begging for somebody to look at them and say, oh, what's wrong? What you want to do is say, what's wrong with your face? Fix the face. So they get this fasting face. He said, they dis- disfigure. Can you, uh, you, you, your mind can only imagine what kind of an ugly, contorted face that they adopt. And they hold this face. You're afraid your face will freeze like that. And they hold this face throughout their fasting so that when people would see them, they'd say, well, they're fasting. Look at their face. It's obvious. And Jesus said, when you do that, you've already got your reward. And that is people got to see your fasting face. That, that's it. That's, that's all you're getting. And Jesus said, but my disciples, when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face. In other words, just put on a good, healthy appearance, a glowing appearance. So it will not be obvious to others you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. My disciples are not going to be gloomy. My disciples are not going to telegraph to the world what's going on. My disciples are going to put a happy mask on. My disciples are going to be like the widow woman, the Shunammite, who goes through town, who's just lost her son. And they say, is everything all right with you? And she just says, it shall be well. It's going to be okay. Fasting is a more controversial topic in Christian circles than praying and charitable giving. And it's further complicated by the fact, have you ever realized that Jesus never prioritized fasting? He fasted personally. 
He never took his disciples and said, we're going to go on a retreat and we're all going to fast this weekend. He never did that. As a matter of fact, whenever the Pharisees came and they said to him, we notice you don't fast because, you know, fasting was a part of what they did. We notice you, your disciples, you never fast. He's, and he said, lay off of them. You know, the bridegroom's still with them. It's time to feast. We're not going to fast. He did acknowledge that there'd be times when they would fast later on. He didn't say it's not important. But he said, right now, that's not the priority in following me, not for my disciples. So it complicates the whole issue of fasting. Do it in secret. Let me, let me summarize what Jesus has taught us today. First of all, we can learn from this whole thing that God is infinitely more interested in the inward than the outward. And we seem to be more interested in the outward than the inward. We want to count numbers. We want to make something significant out of statistics. We want to count salvations. We want to count baptisms. We want to count attendance. We want to count uh, uh, offerings. We want to to measure budgets. We want to do, and this is all outward stuff. And when it really goes bad is whenever we begin to use those things to measure our spirituality, our success in the kingdom. Well, this is a total failure because the numbers just don't reflect the success of this. And especially when you're in the ministry, that's a temptation to rely on the statistics. But God is infinitely more interested in the things that are not seen. In the spiritual things that are happening in the lives of people than what we can measure on the outside. Churches will invest millions in beautiful buildings and they're content to fill them up with dead men's bones. And then the final word we have about this is I have to touch on the subject of rewards. Because did you notice, as I said, there's a rhythm to these three three things. This is what hypocrites do. Don't do it like the hypocrites. But you, when you do this, do it in secret. And when you do it in secret, your Heavenly Father will reward you. Now, the reward motif keeps coming up. And that's difficult for us because we know, being Christians, that we're not supposed to be working for God for the reward. We know that. And so we shy away from that. We get uncomfortable when we start talking about rewards. But Jesus was not the least bit uncomfortable talking about rewards. Because keeping it in perspective, Jesus understands, and he hopes we understand, that we should not be working for the rewards. The rewards are incidental. We're working for God. But there will be rewards when we keep our motive right. And the reason he wants us to know that there's going to be rewards is because he wants to, he wants to reassure us he's not ignoring us, that he hasn't left us. He wants to show us he loves us. And his rewards are reminders that we're on the right path. We need that God knows. He created us. He knows exactly what our needs are. We need those reminders once in a while. And even when we don't get all of the rewards as we're walking down here, we're resting assured that it was not all for nothing. We did it because we loved God. 
We did it because we realized we needed eternal life. We did it because it's the best choice human beings have to choose life over death, to choose everlasting life over everlasting destruction. We know all of those things. That's the reason we do this. But isn't it wonderful that we have a Heavenly Father that says there's going to be a little extra something for you when it's all over because that's how much I love you. So we don't shy away from the rewards. We just don't make them the focus of what we're doing. And if we become so fixated and fascinated on our rewards that we're going to get, we're missing the whole point. We're not living for Jesus and working for Jesus to be seen or congratulated for our works. We do it in secret. If, if we've got people that, let me just use the worship team for example. If we've got people that want to be a part of the worship team because they want to be in front of people. They want that satisfying feedback and feeling that I am an important part here. Listen to me sing. Watch me do this. This is going to be great. I love being loved. You're totally on the worship team for the wrong reason. If it's just to glorify God, God has a reward for you. But it's because you want to be a part of where the action is. Do you, do you realize, people, I, 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 as a pastor, I can tell you, do you realize that being on the worship team is probably the number one attraction to people coming in? I get very people coming in here and say, Pastor, I really want to be involved. I want to plug in. Have you got any toilets that need to be cleaned? But this is the attraction. I want to be up there. I want to be on the worship team. But what we do to glorify God is the only thing that's going to last. What we do for personal satisfaction has no reward and no appreciation from God.